Hello, this is the Ether Podcast, and I'm Rodrigo. And this is Ryan. And today, we are going to be total and absolute Bible nerds, uh, because we're looking at a very deeply theological passage, and it's Mark 9, verses 2, all the way through verse 29. And a lot is happening here, a lot of stuff that is of very high significance, not only for the ministry of Jesus, but for the story of the Bible as a whole. And we have a lot to cover. Ryan and I are very excited because we like this kind of stuff. And basically this passage points to Jesus really being the Messiah, the kingdom being here, and basically Jesus being awesome in general. So with that being said, Ryan, why don't you start us off and talk about a little bit about this passage and the many meaty things that are in it. So I remember reading the Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne in high school and being just like bored to tears by the amount of words that this man could use to describe somebody walking across a gravelly road that an entire page is given to crossing the street and what it's like. And Mark completely goes against that style of writing yes. by packing as much detail as he can and using the fewest number of words. It's one of those things that, that helps it keep that pace, that just frenzied, frenetic pace throughout the entire book. Um, makes Mark the shortest book. Yeah. and But that doesn't mean that not a lot of stuff happens. It means that a lot of stuff happens and you need to be able to unpack it. And so we're going to try and unpack this in a way that hopefully makes sense to each other. Uh, most importantly, I hope that you and I understand one another and then other folks. Um, so just to, to kind of backtrack a little bit, um, we're coming out of chapter eight, obviously. And chapter eight uh, was this turning point where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the group, stands up and he says, we believe that you are the Christ. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that Christ means Messiah. And so it's not just uh, Jesus's family name. I come from the family of Christ, but it's, <laughs> but it's, it's I, am, <laughs> I am the Messiah that, that that means something. And it meant something very much to them. And as we get into it today, we'll see that, that they keep tipping their hand of, still what they think a Messiah and the Messiah was going to look like and what he was going to do. And so in chapter eight, the disciples said, we believe that you're Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. And Jesus said, all right, here's what it means to follow me. And then it, chapter nine starts off by Jesus taking it up to another level that I'm glad that you said that I'm the Christ, but now we're going to do something completely different. And he does it through this thing called transfiguration. And that's where we're going to start off is focusing on the transfiguration and jumping into a kind of a crazy story following that up. But uh, just to start, it talks about Jesus being transfigured in front of his three disciples. So Jesus had his group of 12 uh, disciples. He had a bunch of people that followed him. He had a close circle of 12 guys. And then he's got this smaller intimate group of three guys, um, Peter, James, and John takes him up on this mountain. And it says that Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. And the word transfigured comes from the Greek metamorpho, which is this complete change of being. And so there's a lot of things that change in nature. There's a lot of things that we can think of that shift or have some sort of fundamental change. But, but this is a completely different form that Jesus took on. So uh, like a caterpillar changing into a butterfly, that's metamorpho. That's transfiguration. It's this, I was one thing and now I'm something completely different. Right, like two diff completely different creatures. 
Absolutely. Yeah. But obviously there's this, this commonality and it's really cool when you start looking at the idea of what is it going to be like when we go to heaven? And I don't want to get too far off, off topic, but as you think about what heaven is going to be like, this is a great verse to look at because we see that Jesus embodies certain characteristics that were the same, meaning his disciples could look at him and say, that's Jesus right there. I know who he is. I can identify him, but there's something different about him. And Mark talks about him, his, his clothes shining, talked about um, him, his clothes being whiter than anyone could bleach them. Luke in chapter nine says that his face changed, meaning that there is this fundamental shift that his entire face looked the same anymore. Yeah. That it was, it was Jesus, but it was a different version. And as you start looking at uh, appearances of the resurrection, you see that Jesus looked different, but looked the same. And, and so it's kind of cool to see these different links. Um, but without getting too far off topic, um, so we've got this, this difference of Jesus being completely different. And when it, whenever we see this interaction with God throughout the Bible, there's always this inclusion of light that Moses' face, when he goes up on the mountain and he talks with God and he comes back down, that Moses' face was shining because he was with God. He had to put a veil over his face because his face was too bright to look at that when Paul was called in acts that it talks about this light was shining around him that, um, John, when he's writing the, the book of revelation in one sixteen, he described Jesus's presence as being like the sun shining in full strength. So all these, all these encounters with God have something to do with bright, intense light. And what we see with Jesus here as he's transfigured and takes on this different shape is that he looks completely different, that there's this presence of bright light. And we get this idea that it's Jesus's true divine nature shining through his human nature. So we talk about this idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man. Well, most of the time when we see Jesus, he's fully man. He's, he's a real guy. He's, eating with his disciples. He says, come over here and touch the holes in my hand. Um, He hugs people, people embrace him. They touch him. He's fully man. This is an instance here where we see him being fully God and that he was completely different. And so we start seeing something that we haven't seen before. And Peter, who in chapter eight had confessed that Jesus is the Christ. You are the son of God. You are promised that this must have been just mind blowing that I thought I had a perspective of what the Messiah was, but I don't even know what to say. And as we see in a couple of seconds, Peter starts just speaking nonsense because he didn't know what else to say that this completely shifted every understanding that he had about what the Messiah must have been. Yeah. And so couple of details you didn't share, Ryan Novak, is that in, in the midst of this transfiguration, who appear there with Jesus are Moses and Elijah, and they have a conversation, which here in Mark, we have no idea what the content of that conversation is. But Luke, when he recounts the same event, basically has them talk about the fact that he is going to die soon that he's going to do it in Jerusalem and all this other stuff. Right. And so all of this stuff is happening in this passage. And there is a lot here that has very deep significance for the overall narrative of the Bible as a whole. There's many allusions to the Old Testament. Basically, as soon as this passage begins, uh, in verse 2, in Mark 9, verse 2, it says, And after six days, Jesus stood with him, Peter and James and John, and let him up high on a mountain. And again, there are a lot of events, very important events in the narrative of the Bible and the narrative of God that happen around mountains 
but none probably that comes to mind that isn't more clear or more important than the giving of the law. Yeah. Um, Exodus 24, 16 actually says that uh, Moses had to wait for six days that God was the presence of God was on Mount Sinai. And that after six days, he called Moses and told him to come up to the mountain. And so six, again, Mark very curiously includes a detail that after six days, they go up on this mountain and it's a, you know, it's a high mountain. It's not just any mountain, but it's a high one. And again, there's supposed to be an illusion of like, Hey, this event is just as important as the giving of the law. Like this is totally, this is big and it's epic and it's significant. It's a big sort of like a flag in this whole narrative of Jesus here as if we hadn't had enough by now, here is this huge affirmation that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And even the significance of Moses being there, who is the lawgiver and Elijah being there, who sort of has two significance. One, Elijah sort of represents the prophets as a whole uh, because he's sort of considered like the chief prophet, I guess, uh, (laughs) in the old Testament because he was he never died and that was a huge deal and the other thing is that elijah was supposed to prepare the way for moses i mean way for jesus to, yeah yeah he was to prepare the way for jesus and so here you have uh somebody who represents a prophet somebody who represents the law and again elijah representing the the one that was be, to come before the messiah and the messiah all in one place basically indicating hey the kingdom is here yeah and, and again, you can read through this and go like, oh, man, this is cool. But all these details bring a richness and a meaning and a power to this passage that is really, it's really awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that you can look at, at the significance of some of these details and, and not see what, what Mark is trying to do. Um, just the fact that he, he drops in after six days it's such a unique thing to say, like, why not just after some time? He, he gave it a very specific amount of time. And Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto a very high mountain. Again, it's, it's not what you normally would say, that, right. that you'd be maybe a little bit more specific. He took them up on this mountain, or he, um, he took them up on a mountain. Because in this area, you got mountains all over the place. So why did they have to to pick out and say on a very high mountain? Um, I've got uh, I got no research or anything that I've found about the fact that this could be the case. But when I read about going up on a high mountain, I thought about the um, the temptation where mm-hmm. Satan took Jesus up on a high mountain and said, "Here are the kingdoms of the world, and here's what I'm going to do." And it, I thought about this contrast between the way that Satan observed the, the, the goals and the mission of God and the way that Jesus approached the mission of God. Um, so not sure if, how much of a connection there is. It could be just coincidence. But I do think that I completely agree with you to say after six days, very specific amount of time. It's the same amount of time that Moses had to wait. Um, it's the same amount of time that, that, uh, God spent creating the world, um, before he gave man a time to sit back and stand in awe of who he was right. um, with the Sabbath. And so what is this? This is the seventh day because after six days had concluded, now this is going to happen. And you see, let me now show you something that is going to just blow your mind. And that's exactly what, what happens to these guys is they go up and they're just completely dumbfounded. Um, you had mentioned Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. And it's this, this barb that's just straight through the heart of, of this Jewish defense against the Christian claim that Jesus is the Messiah of them saying, look, we don't believe that, that the Messiah was destined to die. And here we see 
the, the disciples being able to come back and say, look, you have the law and the prophets wrapped up with everything that Jesus did. And they're both there talking with Jesus. They're talking about his crucifixion. They're addressing this, that, that it's a part of the messianic plan. And it takes away that argument that the crucifixion wasn't a part of the messianic plan. Right. Uh, which just, it continues to, to reaffirm what Mark is trying to do of saying, not only is Jesus divine and the Messiah, but I also am making a case why this is different than what the Jews are trying to teach. And so he's putting in as much information as he can. Um, I think it also, um, (laughs) I was thinking about them talking about the crucifixion. I thought, man, that had to step on, on Peter's toes as well. Maybe Jesus gave him like a, a wink as he's talking with uh, Moses and Elijah, where Peter had, in chapter eight had said, there's no way you're going to die. Right, right. That, that that's not what the Messiah is about. You're, you're coming in power. You're coming as a soldier. You're coming as a king. You're going to lead us to greatness. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You don't understand what I'm trying to teach you. And here you've got the law and the prophets talking with, with Jesus and saying, so your crucifixion, that thing that's coming up, this is what you have to do. Right. Jesus looks at Peter and kind of gives him a wink and a nod. And Peter goes, okay, I got it. Right. I get it. Messiah supposed to die. The two things I, I feel, I, I don't feel bad because, um, because Peter is Peter and he, he does a lot of things that you, that you go like, come on, Peter do better. I appreciate that in him. No, absolutely. But even though obviously they're bewildered and they don't know what to do. And sort of Peter's reaction is to say like, Hey, let me build you a tent. He's not completely off Ryan Novak. Okay. I think in Hispanic, he sort of accessed uh, a point of reference that wasn't necessarily completely off base because everything that's happening right now again, alluding to the Old Testament and the Exodus and Moses and all this stuff. You know, one of the things that I read is, is the, uh, one of the commentaries that I read was sort of giving Peter credit because it's, it almost seems that he, where he's going in his mind is the, the tabernacle and sort of that a, a proper reaction to all of this stuff that he's witnessing and all this awesomeness is to to think of the tabernacle where, where the law rested, where God resided before the temple was built and all this other stuff. So as an effort to not completely present Peter as a complete, you know, man who is lost. <laughs> when I read this commentary, I was like, I could see that. I mean, I, I could see that, but maybe more importantly, as part of this whole episode, Ryan Novak mm-hmm. is that a voice from heaven is heard once more repeating the same thing that we hear in Mark 1 11, which is like, Hey, this is my son. And with him, I am well pleased. But in this particular occasion, what is added is that listen to him. Mm-hmm. And this also has a old Testament reference that I want to read to you because I think that this is super cool. Ryan Novak. Okay. And this is in Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desire of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it, require it of him. And I think this is awesome for a myriad of reasons, again, one of which 
is that basically this is saying that this this man who is to be raised among your brothers, that's Jesus, right? That who sort of this this brother that was going to speak for God is now here. But I think what's built into this passage in Deuteronomy is that the reason why this this prophet from the brothers needs to come is because they're so terrified of God that they don't want to hear him directly. Mm. And it really made me think uh, of what in approachable fashion Jesus comes to be amongst us. There was something about Jesus that children felt like they could approach him. Yeah. The, the lowliest of the people of their time in their society felt like Jesus was somebody that they could come and request things from. And sort of this idea that, that God is so mighty and powerful that somebody who would sort of represent his milder side, somebody who would, who would be like a man would have to come to speak his words. And that is indeed how Jesus comes. Jesus comes as a man, as a poor man, as the son of a carpenter, as somebody who suffers just like we do. And again, in, in this simple phrase, like, listen to him, making the allusion to the scripture in Deuteronomy, I just think it's so cool that in, in a moment of, the A, that this is fulfilling a promise, but in a moment in which people were afraid of God, because of he was a fire and he was mighty and they couldn't even like bear to listen to his voice. God promises, Hey, I'm going to send somebody who's going to be your brother and mm. who will have my words. And, and to see how true that is in everything that Jesus is, I think is so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things that he did that, that win your heart as you listen to the way that he interacted with people and um, you know, you love verses about Jesus weeping at the, the um, after his friend Lazarus had passed and you don't love that Jesus is in pain, but you love the fact that, that Jesus loved a man so much that, that his death and Jesus knew that, that his death was only temporary. He knew it was, he was about to do that. There's still this, this outpouring of emotion for, for just a man. And when you get back down to it, you realize that man came from, from dirt. I mean, without God, we're dirt. Right. And so here's a clump of dirt that Jesus is crying over um, because he knew that his friends were hurting. He knew that this guy had died and he loved him and, and knew the, the earthly significance of death, um, that that's engaging. Um, you love that, that as Jesus is dying on the cross, he looks down and he, and he thinks about his mom and, and takes care of her and says, says to, uh, to John, he says, Hey, this is your mom. Take care of her. Right. Um, and so he's not only, taking care of his young friend, but he's also taking care of his mom in that regard. Um, you love the way that he, he interacts with kids and you love the way that he, he feeds people um, that in, in the span of what is it? Two chapters that he, he feeds over 9,000 people, people. Um, which is pretty amazing that, um, that, that that's, that's his heart, that that's his attitude, um, which is very different. I, I think a lot of people are turned off by the Old Testament because of the, 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 the Old Testament God is one of fear and one of fire and one that tells his people, go and slaughter everybody. He's a God of blood and revenge and, um, and power and uh you you think wow that is a that is intense um i can handle this jesus guy though <laughs> and yeah so so people really really like that but even like you were referring back in deuteronomy where they come to the, the foot of the the mountain 
and they they see the smoke, they see the fire on the top, and they they tell Moses, "We're not going up there. You go up there." Right. Um, because they they were fearful. I don't know what what could happen when you mess with God, and Jesus comes as that that bridge in between the fearfulness of God and and the gentleness of a lamb and as one of your brothers um that's it's much more disarming yeah. um and so i i definitely appreciate that about him yeah and uh so uh moving on here unless there's anything that you want to add about this passage in particular brian nova um i i this is the first time that we see in mark um the a clear description of Jesus being more than man. Um, before um, we saw in his baptism, we hear a voice come from heaven that says, this is my son, which sort of makes you feel like, like, okay, he's not really a part of heaven and what's going on in heaven that, that yeah, he's God's son. So there's a close connection. Um, but here's the first time that we actually see that he's got some divinity about him, that he, mm. he himself is God. And it's this, this completely mind shifting moment between what happens in Mark eight of leading up to Jesus saying, all right, you've seen everything. Who do you say that I am? And now let me really, uh, take the cap off this thing and let me show you something that's really going to blow your mind. Um, and I, in a minute, we're going to see that, that this father had a problem seeing Jesus as the solution for his need. Um, and I think what, what the father had to do, and we'll talk about this in a second is he had to confess his need for Jesus first and so we're seeing the same thing with the disciples in chapter eight, where Jesus said, I will show you amazing things, but I need to hear it from your word, from your mouth first. What do you believe? Right. Who am I to you? Now let me show you amazing things. Um, and I think we see that again and again throughout the Bible of faith comes before the, the payout um, that God promised Abram that you're going to have all these kids. And Abraham believed him before his wife was pregnant, um, before anything happened, that Joseph believed that he was destined for great things before anything happened, that um, Moses went in and said to Pharaoh, let my people go, um, or our God is going to do uh, crazy things against you before he'd seen anything happen. Um, and so we see it again and again and again of the belief has to happen before uh, we really can find the, the, the payout on the other side, right. which can be very, very difficult. We, wanna, we want proof. We want to feel secure that this is the right decision. This is the right response. This is the right um, path to follow. And, and now we're seeing that, when you follow the path that Jesus sets out for us of tell me you believe, and then we'll have the, the payout. We see that there are amazing things that happen that are beyond description. Let me uh, move on here. Cause I think there's this very, um, I guess, interesting because for as much for as great as what James, Peter, and John just witnessed, you still have a situation in which they they don't fully understand everything that's going on. So on the way, the voice goes away, Moses and Elijah go away, and again, they're still kind of wondering what just happened. And they have this conversation with Jesus about Elijah, and they don't. Uh, the passage talks about how they are, they're not really understanding this whole thing while being raised from the dead and they asked Jesus, Hey, what are the, uh, what are the scribes say that Elijah has to come? Right. And Jesus response is basically to say, he already came. Man. 
And obviously who, who he's alluding to is John the Baptist. And even he says, uh, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they please as it is written of him. And I think there's sort of a, a, a twofold thing there. Again, you would think that after witnessing what, what these three disciples witnessed, they'd be completely sold on the idea that Jesus is going to die and be raised and that they sort of have pieced all of the things together. But clearly they're still in a place where they have to uh, get past their preconceived notions of who the Messiah was. Mm -hmm. Because they still haven't put together that John the Baptist was Elijah. Right. And, and basically there was a consensus that Elijah had to come before the Messiah came. There was some disagreement as to what that was going to look like. Nobody was expecting for Elijah to look like John the Baptist. And it seems that even the disciples at this point have put that together. And so there's that aspect of it. But there's also the aspect of it in which Jesus says, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased. Almost saying as if like, hey, if they did that to him, imagine what they're going to do to me. Mm -hmm. And sort of how, again, within this narrative is this whole idea that not only is the Messiah going to suffer, but even Elijah suffered. I think that when we see what Peter's response was to Jesus in chapter 8 of Jesus saying, uh, I need to go and, and, and die. And Peter's response is, <laughs> no, it, it showed that Peter's understanding of what the Messiah was, wasn't going to easily change. And it showed that he had some preconceptions about what the Messiah was going to look like in a sense of, I, I know what he's going to kind of do or what he's going to accomplish or what he's going to be about. And for Jesus to say, I'm, going to die was completely different. And I think it's, it still sticks with them because what did, what do they focus on? What do they attach themselves to? And it says um, that they, they kept questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Well, okay. I guess it means that he has to die, but that, that doesn't make sense. Uh, here we've got, I just saw Elijah and Elijah didn't die, but Moses was just this complete mind altering experience that they they're having. And you see that there's this misunderstanding of the scriptures and this misunderstanding of what Jesus is trying to teach them. And he's trying to show them that, as the Messiah, I'm different than what you expected me to be. And I think we have to ask ourselves, of what do we expect Jesus to be? And I think a lot of our traditions, the way we're brought up, the, the messages, the types of messages that we hear preached at our particular church, um, greatly influence what we expect Jesus to be. Right. And it's very easy for us to put Jesus into a box. It's very easy to put this idea of who Jesus is and what he's about onto a three by five index card of this is who Jesus is. And I think it really depends. And I think that your perspective can be really changed by your experiences. You know, if you uh, grew up uh, with people with parents or surrounded by people who are about taking care of other people, then Jesus's heart for others really stood out and you become very, much about um, Jesus's heart for social uh, goodness and benefit for other people. If you were very much about uh, maybe you had strict parents um, and you were always trying to fight for their, uh, their approval that you see Jesus as, as this judge and you're fearful of him. And those two pictures don't necessarily jive with the modern version of Jesus who's willing to forgive anybody and anybody can come in. And I love everyone. 
that that's very different as well. And Jesus is saying, look, you have these ideas of who I am and I'm challenging those ideas that I want you to know that the Messiah is not a political leader. I want you to know that the Messiah is not here to free you from Rome, but instead I'm here to free you from sin. I'm here to help you get into heaven. I'm not necessarily here to help restore Israel and to bring Israel back together. I want to provide a relationship with God that I don't want you to be separated from God. I don't want there to be this this distance between you and God. I don't want you to stand at the foot of the mountain. I want you to go up the mountain. Um, That I'm here to rule uh, hearts and minds. I'm here to to be the Lord of everything about you. I'm here to give you peace of mind and to help your mind be at ease because you trust in me. And that all of this is going to be done through his cross and done through a sacrifice and crucifixion, not through any sort of political, not through any sort of military means, not through any anything else that, that a lot of these early disciples were wrestling with. And, and he's trying to, to get them to understand what does the Messiah, what is he about? Along those lines as, as to sort of really demonstrate that he is a Christ and that he has his power and that he's come to do all these things, we sort of transition into this other story in which they now come down from the mountain and they join all the other apostles and they're arguing with people and Jesus goes like, what's happening here? And basically a father whose son is possessed by a spirit, uh, he brought him to the apostles that weren't up on the mountain and they were unable to do anything for him. And so Jesus utters uh, this thing that I always find fascinating. Uh, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. <laughs> and uh, who he's talking to, interestingly enough, is are his disciples. And he's basically criticizing their lack of faith. And you know, one of the things that I find interesting about this particular passage is all the places in which there is lack of faith. There's lack of faith from the part of the dad. There's lack of faith from the part of the apostles. And interestingly enough, that's what Jesus is looking for. And much like you alluded to before, he sort of proceeds to do something about this spirit. He asks the dad very directly, hey, do you really think I can do this? And as you said, he's asking him to sort of assert his need for him. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the dad's response is, we believe, help my own belief, almost saying, yes, I believe, but I don't. In, in this whole narrative in which we have a passage that's very demonstrative of Jesus's divinity and his power and the fact that he is the Christ and what happens on the mountain, I feel is very uh, spiritual in a sense, like, you know, Elijah's there and Moses there. And obviously they're, they're not in a physical form and Jesus is transformed. And this voice from God is, is heard from the heavens And all of this is very heavenly and very spiritual, if you will. And sort of literally as they come down from the mountain is things come back to earth (laughs) in a very literal sense. And, And yet, and this is something that Mark has done consistently through the book, is it he shows Jesus being above the things that very easily affect humans, the weather, authorities, spiritual powers. And here, once again, in the context of of this whole narrative about Jesus, like you said at the beginning, he appears in his most heavenly form. Mm -hmm. He's now back with the people, but he's still shown as a superior being, one that has great power and authority. You got to imagine how discouraging this must have hit Jesus 
where he's coming down the mountain, probably on this little tiny trail, walking down the mountain with the guys. And, and he's had this amazing experience and right. his, his three closest guys start talking to him like, all right, we're not with you on this risen from the dead thing. And Jesus <laughs> goes, Oh man, you guys got to be kidding me. You're the ones that I'm going to turn things over to. Come on. And he's struggling with that. And as he gets to the bottom of the mountain, he sees this little fracas going on over, over on the side. And he goes, Oh man, you got to be kidding me. Who's over there? (laughs) Judas is stirring things up again with the townspeople and, and uh, you know, Simon the zealot is over there rolling up his sleeves and, and putting his hands on this guy and, and, and the other disciples are pulling him off and saying, you can't put your hands on other people like that. It's, um, and Jesus is going, I, I, I can't believe that this is the group that I've got. Um, but what we, what we see is that Jesus comes in with a whole lot of love, a whole lot of compassion, um, that it doesn't, he doesn't come in with this attitude that, you and I may have. Right. Um, and the disciples had started by focusing on the, the sun that they kind of pushed the dad out of the way and said, let us tackle this problem rather than tar- turning and looking at the dad. And Jesus ignores the sun for a minute and looks at the dad and says, let's look at you and let's look at your situation that I can take care of this, this, this demon, this spirit, this no problem but let's talk about you. Why are you here? And that what we see is that, that the dad didn't come to Jesus because he said, Jesus can fix it. It's more of this attitude of I've got nowhere else to go. I'm out of options. Maybe you can do something. And you can see, you can sense that Jesus is, is, uh, feels that burn. Uh, what do you mean if I can do something? And he, he says, I absolutely can. But that ends up being the, the focal point is, is not what I can do for your son. It's, it's you're here without a, an understanding and a belief in who I am. And you need to address that first. Mm. I can do anything, but you first have to believe in me. Um, and so the, the weakness in the story is not necessarily the boy's illness, but it's, it's the father's faith or the lack of faith that that's the actual weakness of the story. Um, and so Jesus, he wasn't taking care of, wasn't simply going to take care of the son. He was taking care of the son and the father and meeting more needs than just the one that the disciples were focused on. And after the, the dad said, I do believe in you. And Jesus heals his son that we see that two lives get, get touched and that two lives get changed. And, and that if, if the disciples had been able to heal his son, that the guy would have left and walked away and wouldn't have had to, to face his unbelief that his son would have been fine. He wouldn't have met Jesus and he would have been on his way. But now that the disciples weren't able to do it, um, he, Jesus forces the father to confess his own need. And, and you see that there's a, sh- a change in the father and obviously later on in, with the son. One last thing that I wanted, I wanted to add before we move on and talk about sort of where this passage fits and the overall narrative of Mark and in the sort of context of what surrounds this passage mm-hmm. Because I think that's that's very important in our conversation here. But I wanted to add this thing about prayer in, in which, um, especially in what you just mentioned, looking to a future in which Jesus is handing sort of the keys to the kingdom to these guys. Right. And they ask him, hey, how come we couldn't do this? And he says, this kind of situation can only be overcome through prayer. And again, looking into a future in which Jesus won't be there. And sort of putting prayer in this pedestal of in which Jesus is saying, hey, there are going to be things that are overwhelming and they're going to seem like you can't do them. And the only way that you can do them is through prayer. 
I think that's really cool. I think not only for them, but for us. Um, you know, there are things in our lives that are daunting. And there are things in our lives that seem like we can't do them. And for Jesus to put prayer in that position in which, hey, these things that are overwhelming, you can overcome them through prayer. I don't think we we often look at prayer in that way, in that, man, like this is the key to some of my biggest challenges. And I think that's that's really cool. Well, don't you think that with what he had just said to the father, the idea being that you didn't come to me, you came, you didn't come to me first. You came because you were out of options because you're even still saying uh, if you can help me that, that you don't believe. And it's the same idea. I think of what he's saying to the, to his disciples of you didn't even turn to God that you didn't do in both cases, both you, the disciples and you, uh, demon boys, dad, neither of you guys turned to me. You were trying to figure it out and solve it yourselves. And I can understand why you may have done that. You have done some amazing things in the past. Um, uh, You've heard some great things about me. Uh, So could make sense, but I need to be your first place that you turn to and the first place that you go. And you're trying to solve this all on your own. So I think he's trying to, he was giving the same message to the disciples as he was to the dad. Absolutely. Uh, so let's move on here. Cause I think, uh, probably one of the things that you have to wonder when hearing all these things that we're talking about and maybe our audience or even for ourselves is the very natural question of like, Hey, this is all great and everything, mm-hmm. but so what? And, um, let me offer this as a, so what Ryan Novak, and you can tell me what you think. Gotcha. Uh, when we started this whole series in Mark, one of the things that we discussed very thoroughly is sort of the intent of this book, that it is very possible that Mark wrote this book both as uh, as an encouragement and as a way to tell people who are going through a great degree of persecution basically to say like, hey man, hold on. I know that you're going through a rough time, but this is Jesus and this is who you worship and this is who you're going through all of this for. Right. And sort of with that idea in mind, again, this affirmation of Jesus being transfigured and Moses being there and Elijah being there and all these allusions to the Old Testament and to the giving of the law, and here's the prophet that was to be raised among the brothers. And Elijah has come. And here he is driving out spirits again and telling people, hey, rely on me and all this stuff. That all of this fits very well in, in the supposed intent of Mark or one of the possible intents of Mark writing this gospel to which to a bunch of people that are suffering and a bunch of people that are going through a really hard time to say like, Hey, this is the Messiah. Like you're not going through this in vain. This, this sort of reward that you, that you made a decision for that you are going to be renewed and that you're going to be transformed and that Jesus really is the Messiah. Like, Hey, hold on because he really is the Messiah. The other thing that I think this passage fits very well into there's this pattern that that mark consistently follows in his gospel okay which is sort of like a sandwich and what i mean by that is that uh one narrative will be bookended by two things that are topically the same and it would seem like the thing in the middle isn't really related but it is at the end of of mark 8 there's this confession by Jesus that he's going to die and be raised again. Right. Then we go into this whole thing that we just talked about. And immediately after in verse 30, Jesus again says that he's going to die. And then there's a passage in which 
Jesus basically teaches his disciples about the kind of leaders that they're supposed to be. And basically, the end of chapter 8 is Jesus confessing that he's going, to, well, saying that he's going to die and be resurrected, and then teaching his disciples about discipleship. And what follows uh, this passage that we just talked about, again, is an assertion that Jesus is going to die and be crucified, and then another teaching about what discipleship is supposed to be as it relates to greatness or leadership. And so you have this sandwich that are both about discipleship, and in the middle is this whole thing about the transfiguration and all this stuff. And again, it would seem like it's not related, but basically Mark is is sort of in the middle of these teachings on discipleship, is reasserting the authority of Jesus that there's sort of a new world order that these teachings about self-denial and being willing to die on the cross and following Jesus and later on saying like, hey, if you want to be great, you have to be the last of all and the servant of all, that we are to understand those hard teachings and those very radical teachings for that matter, mm-hmm. right? Within the context of this is the kingdom and these are the values of the king. And again, this idea that that this isn't what we were all uh, that this isn't what we were all thinking it was that this is a lot more that again the kingdom is here the king has come it really is him and these are the ways in which we're supposed to live in this set kingdom. Yeah, in verse seven you get that repeated voice coming out of heaven. Um, A cloud out overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And I think what you've got is you've got Jesus being surrounded by the law and the prophets that the Jews set up the law as being unbreakable, infallible. And it was, uh, but here is the voice of God saying, look, here is Jesus surrounded by the two icons of everything that the Jews have based their lives on. And I'm telling you that of all these guys, Jesus is the one to listen to. Reshaping their understanding of Jesus's supremacy. That for all we know, after they talked about Jesus being the Messiah. There could have been this whole discussion about like, man, so he's like on level with like Moses and God's going, no, no. <laughs> he's above Moses. He's completely different. This is my son. Listen to him. Right. And so, yeah, so it, it, it definitely serves as, as an anchor and can serve as an anchor for a lot of these different stories and I think that we have to, to, to keep being reminded of we're hearing some challenging things and seeing some challenging things and hearing some things that for the, the readers of the time would have been incredibly challenging to hear. You know, for us in, in 2018, we've had the benefit of 2,000 years of Christian scholarship and reflection on, the, on how all these different things work together and um, all these amazing philosophers that we think that it's so obvious and we have the benefit of all their research and their, their thinking. But here's, here's a guy who was brought up in the Jewish uh, traditions and in a moment is expected to completely change the way that he perceives the Messiah. That's a difficult thing to do. Um, Right. And so, it's easy to laugh at Peter, but I think in, in a similar situation, if we were put into his shoes, we would respond in a very similar type manner, but knowing that something is different and you need to now know and understand that my son is holding a place that, that Moses and Elijah never will. Right. You know, I think, uh, and let me, close with this thought because I think 
again, talking about the spaces and everything, we love talking about this stuff right now. Like sort of the depths of what things mean and Absolutely. the allusions to the Old Testament and all this other stuff. And and I think it's very easy for anybody who's listening to to leave this podcast and go, oh man, that's really cool. Uh, but this has necessarily, aside from like the information, it has no real impact on my life. To which I would say this. Um, what discipleship is is challenging in every way and even talking about the the two teachings that bookend again talking about the sandwich that bookend this passage one of them again being that we have to deny ourselves carry our cross and follow jesus which again the whole idea there is that jesus is supposed to be the, the center of our lives right that we're supposed to completely phase ourselves out and make jesus everything the other teaching being that the disciples are discussing who's the greatest and Jesus tells them, Hey, whoever wants to be first shall be last. And whoever wants to be the greatest is going to be the slave of all. Whether it was during Jesus's time or our time there, you don't get any lower on the social ladder of things, Ryan. Novak. <laughs> There's no lower wrong than a slave. Right. Like there's just, there just is, you, you cannot get any lower than that. And so the disciples are having this conversation about who's going to be Jesus's right hand guy. And he tells them like, Hey, if you want to be great in my kingdom, forget greatness and think about how you can be the lowest of the low. The, and even again, we talked about this last week and we talked about it in the video as well. This idea that uh, to win, you have to lose and to be great, you have to be less. Neither of those concepts make any sense in our world, Ryan. Right. They, they just don't. Those are not things that we think of when we go, man, I'm going, I'm going to be great and I'm going to do so by being a servant to like a slave to everybody. Right. Absolutely. It, and I'm going to save my life by losing it. Like, that's what I'm going to tell people. Hey, you want to save your life? You got to lose that's it. That's a selling point. It, right. <laughs> and, actually, it, and again, it doesn't, it, outside of the context that this is the kingdom of God and Jesus is its king, these things don't make sense. Right. And it makes perfect, when you look at it that way, it, it makes perfect sense that in between these two teachings, Mark would include a passage that blatantly and unashamedly say, Jesus is the Christ and the kingdom is here. And I think that if we are going to really be disciples of Jesus, we have to be convinced beyond measure that that is still the case, that Jesus is our king and that he is supposed to be our everything. Because otherwise, these teachings don't make sense. They just don't. And I think I love this passage again because of the depth of it and because of all the things that are in there and sort of all the Easter eggs that allude to the Old Testament and all that stuff. But I, I think the, the biggest thing is that it how it fits within the whole context of discipleship that is basically saying, man, yes, like the kingdom is totally here. Yeah. And we can give our lives to Jesus and the values of the kingdom are different. And what he asks of people is not what is usually asked of people. We can have the confidence to live that way because he is the king and this is the kingdom. Yeah. I think that's a great thought to to keep in our minds because it is easy to just read the stories and just glaze over them, but to be able to to take the next step and keep coming back to that same question that Jesus asked Peter very pointedly, who do you say that I am? Right. And there's no amount of knowledge or information that you can ever gain that um, makes that make sense. And you can't reason your way through it. Um, that it's it's 
what you say, I believe that Jesus is the son of God has implications on your life that, that will change you forever. And we have to keep asking ourselves that same question and understanding and figuring out for ourselves, what does that mean for my life? Where do I fall in my belief? Um, do I need help in my belief? Am I like the father? Am I somewhere else um, on this, this spectrum? But uh, yeah, trying to keep that all in, in mind and keep coming back to that question of who do I say that Jesus is? Absolutely. And on that thought, Ryan Novak, we will end this podcast. And uh, we want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, you can find us on social media at EthernMMC. And we do want to remind everybody that this is a, a crowdfunded effort and we appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to support us, you can go to uh, patreon.com forward slash EthernMMC. And uh, we appreciate all of your support. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you on the next one.